0: Thanks, Bev. Great to, um, great to keep the, that part of the Bible open. We're going to particularly be looking at Romans 9 today, so it'd be great if you can have that handy. That would be excellent. So, today we are continuing our series in the book of Romans. Last week, uh, Stuart brought us uh, Romans chapter 12, and this week I'm bringing you Romans 9 to 11. And if you think that's out of order, that's correct, so you've judged correctly, uh, but it was mostly because I was going whole holidays last week and I thought, I'm not going to give Stu 9 to 11, that's unfair. So <laughs> I have this passage before us today. And uh, I want to tell you today as we start that we're going to be stretching a little today. We're going to be stretching a little today. We're going to be looking at the topic of predestination. And uh, if you don't know what that is, that's good. I'm about to tell you. There's another word for it. It's often called um, election, not like what just happened in uh, Victoria. Current affairs people, yes, that's not what, that's not what was going on. Uh, this is about God's choice. And so predestination um, is the doctrine that God has ordained all that will happen, especially with regard to the salvation of some and not others. It was particularly spoken of by Augustine and by Calvin, but we're looking at it because somebody else spoke about it. Uh, Paul, in his letter to the Romans, I'm going to pray that we might see something of the goodness of God in this topic this morning. Heavenly Father, thank you that you are present with us. Thank you for this word that you have sent to us. Help us to understand it, and by your Holy Spirit, Father, teach us this morning, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so how did we get here? Well, I explained that we're out of order. That's, that's part of it. But how did we get to chapter 9? We get to chapter 9, you'll be surprised to know, by going through chapter what? Good? Yes, no, good. You're paying attention. That's fantastic. First service couldn't do that because I was still asleep. But you guys are on it. You're, you're fired up and ready to go. So we get there through chapter 8. Well, what do we see in chapter 8? In chapter 8, we actually meet this idea of God's plan and purpose, God's predestination, and we see it in verses 28 to 30. Have a look with me. Uh, Paul is, uh, is explaining the goodness of the work of the Spirit here, and he goes on to say, because of what Jesus has done, we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose, for those God foreknew He also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. Now, here's the thing. That's actually pretty good news. This is about predestination, and it's good. It says here that because God's in control, because he oversees the whole world, it says he's working all things together for your good. It says that those he starts the process with, those who are called, he also justified, those he justified, he also glorified. What he's saying is you're on a great trajectory. If you're trusting Jesus, you can know you'll meet him face to face at the end because God has called you, justified you, and will glorify you. That's pretty good. His predestination, and it's supposed to be a celebration, not a downer at Bible study. Really, that's what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to encourage the hearts of the saints. And so uh, we see at the end of chapter 8, Paul's waxing lyrical there about the fact that nothing can separate him. Have a look at verse 39. Neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So he's saying, it's glorious, it's good, and it's centred on the good news in Jesus. Fantastic. But, hang on, Paul's writing about the wonders of all of this stuff, and then he thinks there's a problem. Everyone isn't on board yet. Everyone isn't on board yet, right? So some are called, some are justified, some are glorified, and a whole bunch of people at the moment are not. Is that right? That was true in his time. It's true in our time too, isn't it? Because there are still a few uh, spare seats here. And there are a few people that might be shopping or playing soccer or riding a bike or whatever out there, yeah? So what's going on? How can that be? Everyone isn't on board yet. And I want you to hear Paul's heart as he reflects on the glory of predestination and then he goes, hang on, everyone isn't on board yet. Have a look with me at verses 1 to 3 here. Oh, sorry, 1 to 4 in Romans chapter 9. I speak the truth in Christ, I'm not lying. My conscience confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Do you see what he's saying here? He's saying even as he reflects on the goodness of God, he's cut to the heart because of his own people his own people who aren't yet on board with Jesus. And I I was reflecting on this, and I was thinking, could any of us match him in his prayer? Could any of us go, yeah, they're my words. Now, I won't speak for you, but I'll confess to you that I find this really hard. I don't think I've ever said, I wish I was cut off from Christ for the sake of those who don't know Jesus. I don't know that's been my burden. And I wonder for myself, I, I, won't, I won't say it to you, but I wonder there's two, two things I think I lack. The reason I don't pray in the way that Paul prays here. The first one, I think, is do I know the love of Jesus enough? Paul reckons Jesus is so great, so good, so glorious, so wonderful for human beings, that he goes, it's so good, I could even wish to forsake my own salvation for others that they might taste the sweetness of what I've found in Jesus. Did you see that? So I think the first reason I haven't prayed like that is because I don't treasure Jesus in quite the way that Paul does. I think the second reason is, do I love people as much as Paul does? Am I really looking out there and going, man, my heart is overflowing with passion to see you come to know Jesus? As I look out there and I see the cars parked and the people doing, am I just going, I can't wait for you to come here and get what I found. And so I've got to confess, guys, I haven't prayed like Paul because I'm not sure I love Jesus in the way he does or love people in the way he does, and I should. So it's probably a point of confession, isn't it? But Paul has this burden on his heart for his own people. And he, he, he speaks, that's, the, that's what goes on in, in chapters 9 to 11, is him trying to go, God, what are you doing with the Jews? What are you doing with the Jews? And part of his answer is to look at the forest and see the tree, right? <laughs> look at the forest. It, it, when, he, when he looks at Israel, he looks at Israel and sees that there are some but not everyone. Uh, there's a subset of the forest, which is yellow trees. I don't know what's happened with that tree, perhaps has died, I don't know. But you can see it's a different one in the whole forest And I want you to see how that concept plays itself out in verses 6 to 7 here. Despite the fact that the Jews have so much, it says theirs are the patriarchs in verse 5, and from them is traced the human ancestry of the Messiah. Basically, the the Jews have got everything going for them. Have a look at verse 6. It is not as though God's word had failed. For not all that are descended from Israel are Israel. Nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. Now, guys, at that point, we're saying weird things, aren't we? Let's just have a look at that. Basically, he says, not all descended from Israel are Israel. And you're going, use the word Israel twice, what's going on? Okay? Have you guys heard of Jacob? Yeah? How many kids did he have? Does anyone know? Well, yes, it is. Thirteen, but 12, yep, we'll go with 12. So 12 tribes of Israel come from Jacob, right? Jacob's other name, Jacob is also called Israel. He's, the name he has, Jacob is Israel, and his descendants become the nation of... You guys are doing great. Okay, now here's what he says. Not all descended from Israel are Israel. What does that mean? Not everybody who's part of the nation are part of the promise of God. There's a subset of the people who are named Israel who are truly the ones who inherit the good plan of God. They're called the remnant, a a subset, and God consistently deals with the remnant, with the ones who are faithful out of the big mob, the ones who stand out. And to illustrate his point, he uses two sets of brothers. Now, this is really a, uh, a history lesson On the names and people in the Old Testament, okay? But if you're a Jew, you're just rubbing your hands and loving this. Now, you guys are Christians, so you're rubbing your hands and loving. Anyway, bear with me. So Abraham had two sons, and we won't do it as a quiz because that would be embarrassing, right? They had two sons. The first one was born to Hagar as Ishmael. Now, Hagar wasn't his wife, it was a servant, okay? Then the second one is called Isaac, and he's born of Sarah. And you could think, if you were looking at who inherits, who inherits something? Firstborn, excellent. And yet we see something else. Have a look at verses 7 to 9. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, uh, nor because they are descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the, child, the children by physical descent who are God's children, but it is the children of promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this is how the promise was stated. At the appointed time, I will return and Sarah will have a son. Basically, what happens is God says, huh, that's the firstborn over there, but the one I want to honour, the one who is the child of promise, is this one, and the second one is chosen because he's the child of promise. Okay? Okay? And then he says, Well, let's go and look at another set of sons. Isaac's sons, firstborn to Rebekah, a guy called Esau, who's known in the Bible as a hairy man. Now, that's a pretty good thing to have in the eternal word of God, isn't it? He's a hairy man. So that's Esau, and the other one, Jacob. Jacob and Esau. Now, if you're looking at this, who should inherit? Okay, you're playing along really well. The first service got too biblical on me, and they said, Jacob, and I said, no, you're wrong. The one who's the firstborn should inherit everything, right? But that's not what happens. In the biblical story, we see something else takes place. Have a look with me at verses 10 to 13. Not only that, but Rebecca's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, In order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So, who gets chosen? It's Jacob who is chosen and blessed. And it says that the decision was made before they were born because Jacob I loved and Esau I hated. Wait. I'm sure you were listening. What's that bit about hating? What's that about? Why does it say that he hated Esau before he was born? Well, let's just quickly dive into that for a second. Here's Esau. The quote, the words, uh, "Jacob I love, but Esau I hated," actually comes from Malachi chapter one, verses one to three. And you're like, "Oh, that that resolves it for us." Don't worry, I'll explain. Uh, in Malachi, Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. And if you listen to these verses, you'll hear how it comes out. Malachi chapter 1 says this A prophecy, the word of the Lord to Israel through Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you ask, How have you loved us? In other words, the nation of Israel is saying, God, you don't love us. Then God says, Was not Esau Jacob's brother? Yet I have loved Jacob. But Esau I have hated, and I have turned his hill country into a wasteland and left his inheritance to the desert jackals. What's happening here is there's a nation descended from, uh, from Jacob that is favoured by God. And there's a nation descended from Esau that is not favoured from God. The people are saying, God, do you love us? And God says, I love you, but this nation over here, I haven't poured my blessing on them. I haven't poured my blessing on them. So this nation I've loved, but this nation I've hated. It's actually not the individual that's hated. It's the nation who hasn't received favor. And it's a contrast between the love given to Israel and the lack of love given to the nation that descends from Esau. Secondly, we actually see that Esau gets a blessing, or at least God doesn't just hate him. Uh, It says that the two boys were living next to each other, And then in Genesis 36, we're told their possessions were too great for them to remain together. The land where they were staying could not support them because of their livestock. So Esau settled in the hill country of Seir. God actually blessed him personally. He got more stuff. It wasn't just that God hated him. But Paul is making a point here. He's making a point of God's choosing individually. He has the right to choose individually. Have a look at these verses, because this is pretty challenging stuff. Yet before, this is verse 11 of chapter 9, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. How can we be sure that God's election is not dependent on works? Well, let's pick kids who, before they're born. Have they done anything yet? It's got to be by God's choice. But it's worth saying the reality is this is a hard truth, right? One was chosen and one was not. But the trick we have is we think everybody deserves good. Just bear with me, church, okay? Just come on a little journey with me. Do you remember Adam and Eve in the garden? Okay? How much did they have? Okay, good. That's a good answer. They had everything. And they chose to say to God, we don't want you. We want to be in charge. We would love to run this show our own way. We want to wear the crown in this relationship. Yep. See you later, God. And God judges them. says, you guys are sinners. And everyone who is a descendant from Adam and Eve has done the same thing. We have all chosen to say to God, God, we don't want you. We want to run our own life our own way. And you know something about this, don't you, church? We know this. Now, because we're rebels against God, what we naturally deserve is death. That's the punishment for sin. We deserve that. We've all done that. So the default is we all should get death. The problem is when we hear about election is we think everybody naturally deserved good, but all of us have chosen to reject God. We all deserve judgment. The incredible thing is the mercy that anyone is saved. Do you see this? God is gracious to say to some, I choose you, I choose you, I choose you, to take us from what the default was to the gracious position. Do you see that? That's a choice. That's a mercy. That's the grace of God. And so the four means that we're undeserving, and that means that anyone is saved is a wonderful mercy of God. But there is a question that naturally comes, and I want you to see how beautiful this is. It's in Scripture, and the question then becomes, is God unjust? That's what you were thinking anyway, wasn't it? As soon as we hear about choosing, we naturally want to go, is God unjust? Have a look with me at verses 14 and following. What shall we say? Is God unjust? Well, Paul doesn't leave us hanging. He says this, not at all. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy... And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not therefore depend on human desire or effort, but on God's mercy. Is God unjust? The answer is no. God isn't unjust, but he intervenes with mercy and compassion. That's awesome, right? That's awesome. And then he cites an example of where God shows his ability to show mercy to some people and compassion on some people. It says uh, in, uh, in verses 17 to 18, For Scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose. You remember Pharaoh? He was in charge of Israel when they were slaves, and God judged him with how many plagues? 12, 14, no, 10. 10 plagues, Okay. Judged him, okay? And here's what it says, I raised you up, Pharaoh, you're this great king, but you exist for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy and he hardens whom he wants to harden. Pharaoh, despite the fact that he's the most powerful man in the the known world at that point in time, is actually used by God for his purposes, God's glory is served by God's choice. He has mercy and he hardens. Now, I was on holiday the other day, which is very nice, and I went in the water. I'm not a super strong swimmer. Anyone like going the surf? Yep. Yeah? Uh, when it gets big, you can feel the power in the water, right? It's particularly fun watching my little guy um, in the water, Waves come through, and he dis- he's like 20 meters back that way after the wave's gone through, right? But if the, w- the waves are big enough, I'd be doing the same thing. There's that sense we have when we meet real power that we just swept away. What can you do in the face of real power? And, and I think we have a sense of that here. Have a look with me at verse 19. One of you will say to me, Isn't Paul clever? He's anticipating what we would say in response. One of you will say to me, well, why then does God blame us for who is able to resist his will? Do you understand? So if God's choosing, how can God be the judge? Makes sense, doesn't it? Why does God still blame us if he's so powerful? Well, In answer to that, we see a picture that, uh, that Paul paints for us in verses 20 to 21, and it, it's a stunning picture in the sense that we, we wouldn't anticipate this. We, we want to say to God, hey, God, I've got a problem with you. If you're in charge, if you're the big boss, basically what I'm going to do, I'm going to set up two chairs. If you can come here, I'm going to put you on the spot, God. I've got some questions for you. I don't understand how you can be so powerful and so in charge, and yet you still want to. I've got some questions for you, God. Here's what it says. Verse 20, but who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, Why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? Guys, this is really challenging stuff to us. We want to sit down with God as a peer and say, God, you owe me an answer. And here in Scripture, it's saying you need to recognize who you are before the living God. Do we see ourselves as pottery? And will we recognize the potter's rights? Are you with me? Will we recognize the potter's rights? You're pottery. You can have all the objections you want, but you can't take it up with a potter by definition. He's able to do with the clay whatever he wants. Now, guys, this doesn't make us feel warm and fuzzy, does it? But we're put in our place today before God. Yes? He's God. He isn't my mate. He isn't my homeboy. He's not the the one I can just go, hey, bro, what up? He's not like that. He's God. And so I'm put in my place. I'm clay. He's the potter. Will I recognize that? Secondly, he then then chooses this other illustration where he says, What if God, choosing to show his wrath and make known his power, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he also called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles." I don't think he knew about fireworks, right? But I think that's the illustration. God is using the darkness to show off as a canvas for his glory. God is putting up with the sinfulness of mankind and saving some people into the church that they might be a bright light in the darkness. God is saying, I win Jews and I win Gentiles into this new thing called the church. And it's a bright and glorious light for the whole world. Yes, it's dark in this world. Yes, not as many people are currently in the kingdom as could be. But the darkness is showing up the glory and mercy of God. Can you see that? There was a bloke who called God into his office. A guy called Job. Do you remember him? Job had all these terrible things happen to him. Lost his children, lost his business, lost his health. And he took up a serious complaint with God, and he did demanded God have the coffee table conversation with him. And God said this to him in, uh, in Job chapter 40, so there's a lot of time to get there. You can read Job in your own time. In chapter 40, then the Lord spoke to Job out of the storm, Brace yourself like a man, and I will question you, and you shall answer me. Would you discredit my justice? Would you condemn me to justify yourself? Guys, this is strong stuff. Are we going to say to God, God, you're wrong. I'm more moral than you. You're not allowed to do this choice. Do you see the temptation? And God here says to Job, hey, boy, I've got some questions for you. And, and in the next two chapters, God says, have you ever... Have you ever, where were you? Do you know? And the questions are like, have you ever brought the mountains up out of the sea? Have you ever caused the sun to set? Do you know where the storehouse for the snow is? Have you ever caused the animals? And the answer is what, guys? No, you haven't. And so at the end of two chapters of questioning from God, we hear these in chapter 42. Then Job replied to the Lord, I know that you can do all things, No purpose of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my plans without knowledge? Surely I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. In the end, Job says, God, you're God. I'm not. I was wrong. The coffee table conversation is out of order. You're the boss. Now, for the Jews to sit under the word of God, is a challenge for them. And it's a challenge because what Paul is saying is that through Jesus, Gentiles, people who aren't originally part of God's plan that the Jews understood, it looks like they're getting something that the Jews couldn't. Have a look with me at verse 30. What then shall we say? That the Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained it, a righteousness that is by faith. But the people of Israel who pursued the law as a way of righteousness, have not obtained their goal. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, See, I lay a stone in Zion that causes people to stumble and a rock that makes them fall. The one who believes in him will never be put to shame. There's a stumbling block if you're a Jew trying to come to Jesus. They've been going the wrong way. They've been thinking you can be right by doing the right things. But they fail because they pursued it not by faith, but as if it by works. Basically, God said, I'm going to save people. I'm going to make them right through Jesus. There's a wonderful cross up the front of our church. How do you get saved? Not by trying really hard to obey the law, but by trusting what Jesus has done by faith God will freely give you the gift of eternal life. How beautiful. And it seems too easy. And so it becomes a stumbling block for the Jews and keeps them out. Now I've got a little illustration here from uh, Renton in America. Uh, This is the Boeing 737 assembly line. I'm terribly disappointed Michael isn't here to see this. But uh, okay. 737, do you know what that plane is? A little tiny commuter plane? Okay, so... Boeing 737, on this production line, they make 52 a month. 52 a month get made here. That is a really incredible thing. It takes them about six days from start to finish. It is always going, all the time, 52 a month. They've got, I think they said, 4,000 back orders. Now, if you're making a plane... What's the purpose of the plane? How do you know when the plane is doing the thing that it's designed to do? What does it need to do? Okay, the fulfillment, the goal, the outcome that it was all pointing towards is liftoff. That's what it's for. I want you to see that there was a goal, a plan, a, 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 a purpose in what God was doing. Have a look in verse ten, uh, chapter 10, verse 1. Brothers and sisters, my heart's desire and prayer to God for the Israelites is that they may be saved. For I can testify about them that they are zealous for God, but their zeal is not based on knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness of God and sought to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the culmination. Christ is the fulfillment of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Here's the thing. The whole Old Testament, the whole... Assembly of the Old Testament, all that law, everything, was pointing towards Jesus. Lifting off in Jesus, finding that you can be right with God through faith. That's the fulfillment of the law. It's fulfilled in Christ. So we've talked about predestination. It tells us that you can be right with God through Jesus and that God does the choosing. What are some reflections? Firstly, we need to reflect on who God is. Today, we see that God is truly sovereign. What that means is he's the boss and we don't get to direct him. God's truly sovereign. Secondly, we see in this passage that he has mercy and compassion. You can trust the mercy and compassion of God. Incidentally, I'm told in Islam, God is not merciful and compassionate. He's just and full of wrath. There's a difference here. Our God has mercy and compassion. And he has done this incredible work to save people in the, purpose, in the person of his son. That's what our God's like. When we wonder, is God good? Look here, and the answer is, yes, he is. Does he love us? Okay. God is absolutely sovereign. He is merciful and compassionate and he's done everything in his son to save us. I want to ask you as you think about predestination, are you still assuming God is unjust? Look to the cross. Secondly, we need to refer to some things about ourselves. Who are we according to this passage? We're pots. We're clay pots. Okay, You're nice pots. I like you. Good kind of paint. You're doing really well. But we're clay pots. Okay, That's what we are. And We, who trust in Jesus, have been loved and chosen. And this passage tells us hard things. It says that there are some who are hardened and appointed not for salvation. But I want you to know that all can hear the gospel, and since I don't know who they are, I don't know who is chosen and who is not chosen. Here's what I do know, though. Election tells me that there will be profitable fishing out there. You know, you've know you got your little fish finder, right? Okay. I'm telling you, out there, there are fish to find. Definitely there are fish to find. How do I know when I've got a fish? Not when I've got it on the scope. When have, I, when have I got a fish? When I've hauled it in, right? Got it in the boat next to me. Okay. So here's how I'll know that there are fish out there. I'll keep fishing all the time. I'll put the line out all the time because there are people out there God has chosen. They are there. They're destined from before the creation of the world to be saved, and we can find them. How? Chucking the line out. Tell people about Jesus. You will find the people God has prepared from before all eternity when they say yes to Jesus. How are they going to say yes? Keep casting the line out. Are you still assuming that we're good and deserving? Because if you are, you'll have problems with this. If not, you'll look at the mercy of Jesus. So where does this leave us? Two choices. Predestination is got two choices. That's good, isn't it? Predestination is God choosing, and we've got two two points for us. We can say this idea of predestination is wrong, or we can say this is worship. This is the point where we give up and we go, God, I don't, it doesn't all fit in my brain, but you've told me this about you, and I will worship you because you're still good and just and right and holy. There are our choices. On this side, if this doctrine is wrong, I'd love to hear some ripping just tear the chapter 9 out of your Bibles. If you've decided that this is wrong, just rip chapter 9 out of your Bible. Are you with me, team? Do you know what I'm saying? If you get to be the arbiter of what God is like, well, rip the bits out of the Bible you don't like. Go for it. I'm only preaching this because it's the next passage in our series on Romans. I wouldn't have chosen to preach this. There it is. But it's there, and it's telling us about God. So either you rip it out, or you go fishing with me. And I want to say if you're in between going, I am going to ignore what I heard at church today, I'll just encourage you to start repenting for next week when we're back together. Okay, that's a bit cheeky, but so here's some questions that might naturally arrive. I, I know we've been going for a little while, just bear with me. We're just gonna finish on these. Some questions that might naturally arrive. So you hear about predestination. The first question you've got is what about me? Am I saved? Right? How would I know if I'm predestined? The first answer is, respond in faith today. How will you know if you're chosen by God? Choose God. Choose him. Choose God. So choose faith today. If you have chosen God, you'll show that you're chosen by God by hanging on to him until the day when you meet him face by face. Yep. Yeah? So church, choose God. Church, persevere with God. Yeah? What about them? This is the next thought we have, right? So what about them? What about them? Well, the first thing I'd say is, let's give the message of new life and unearth all the people that God has saved. Let's go chuck it out there because I want to see more and more people. So give the message of new life. And secondly, anyone that you're worried about, pray for God's mercy because you and I don't get to see a little sticker on their forehead that says, elect, 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 not elect. We don't know know that. The only way we'll know is how they respond to the good news of Jesus. And then all will be revealed, yeah? So I'd say to you, join me in praying for God's mercy. And what we aren't told is how many might be in that category. There's a line from, I think it's Karl Barth, who said, in the end, he hopes hell's empty. We hear about this category and we fill it up with everyone, don't we? Pray for God to be merciful. Our vision as a church is to see new life come to every home. Pray for God's mercy out here. Pray, pray, pray. Anyone you're worried about, pray. But how can all these other questions that come up in our mind? But what about, but but I choose, but God says He's choosing, and I'd say both are true. Both are true. They're both in the scripture. Is that hard for you? Yep, join me. That's what it says. That's okay. How do we keep living? Trust and obey Jesus, just as you did before you heard this sermon. Really. Okay, the ultimate question at the end of this sermon is this. Who will be sovereign in salvation? Who will be the boss? Is it everybody, is it everybody choosing Jesus, or is it God choosing us and enabling us to choose him? God's in charge. From first to last, that's how it's grace. And uh, while there are still empty seats here, I want to keep remembering that Jesus said, in my Father's house there are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you. I want to pray that you and I might help fill up this place multiple times over as people are called from darkness to light. Heavenly Father, thank you for your goodness. Thank you that in Jesus we see the great hope of this, that people can be chosen and redeemed and brought into your family because Jesus has made it possible. Father, help us to trust you until the final day Help us to give the message of new life and fill this place up for your glory, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.